Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. An act of translation is always an act of betrayal. The pure and faithful transfer of meaning from one language to another is impossible. These ideas and the questions they inspire are central to author Rebecca or R.F. Kuang's 2022 novel, Babel, or The Necessity of Violence, an arcane history of the Oxford Translators' Revolution. Babel was published in August 2022, but the nearly 700-page novel is still getting attention and praise. Local bookseller R.J. Julia recently invited yours truly to host the author in a conversation about the book, which we're delighted to share with you today. The chat took place on November 16th at Polson Middle School in Madison, and that setting was, it turns out, quite relevant to Babel. Let's take a listen different from live radio. I'm on the live stage tonight. Thank you all for coming. This is very exciting. I mean, do you want to say a few words before we get started? Oh, I just always feel so naughty when we do an event at a school because it feels like we shouldn't be here. They're going to kick us out any moment. It is taking me back a little bit now that you mentioned that. I wasn't thinking about it until this moment. So I'm going to take the next two hours to process the fact that I'm back in school and I'm not sure if I like it or not. Um, but I think it's the lockers that really are sending me. Well, here's a funny story. Side note before we actually start this is, so I, I spent a lot of time in Taiwan, uh, during my childhood. And so a lot of my exposure to American school was like babysitters club and like Nancy Drew. And so I thought when I came back to the state, so I'm, I'm originally from LA, I thought I was going to get those cool long lockers in like hallways and stuff. And I was denied that. Because I don't know if you know, but schools in California, because most of the classrooms are actually outside, so we don't have inside hallways, and we only had half of those lockers. Like, it's half of the size. So I still feel very gypped to this day. I had the classic cinematic locker experience, and it was such a big deal because in all the teenage rom-coms, you're always standing by lockers. Like, the locker hallways is where all the drama happens, and we'd all grown up watching these. So when we were in elementary school, we were so excited to get to middle school where we would have lockers. And I think our teachers knew this, too, because there was, like, there was a locker day. They would bring in a teacher from the middle school with like practice locks and teach us how to do the lockers and like explain locker culture to us. It's a really weird American thing. I missed out so much, guys. I, I'm very upset. Um, clearly, this is a really big point in Babel as well. So, um, so I thought we would start off for our friends who have not read Babel yet or who are planning to binge read it tonight right after this conversation. But please drive safely home before you do that. Can you talk about, you know, what is Babel? What, what is the story about? 
So Babel is a historical fantasy novel set in 1830s Oxford, and it centers around four students who have entered to study at the Royal Institute of Translation, which is not a real institute at Oxford. I made it up, but I think it should exist. And the reason why it's fantasy is because the magic system is something called silver working, and how it works is you inscribe a phrase or a word in one language. On one side of a silver bar, and the corresponding word or phrase in a different language on the other side. And since anybody who's bilingual or who works in translation knows, there's no perfect one-to-one correlation between words and phrases in any two languages, no matter how similar they are. There's always something warped, something lost in translation. And in Babel, that thing that is lost becomes manifested as the magical effect. And it's also about secret societies and friendship and decolonization and all sorts of fun things. So. And lockers, obviously.、Um, well, and I think one thing I really love about Babel—you just mentioned it too—it's it's so many genres in a novel. It's it's you mentioned it's history, it's fantasy, it's dark academia, which I think is like a subculture in of itself that merits its own conversation, like a separate conversation later. But I'm really curious to learn why the Victorian times. You know, I'm a big Victorian lit fan, big Dickens fan, love、uh, Mary Elizabeth Braden. Um, but curious to learn, you know, why the Victorian pastiche. Well, to answer that, I have to backtrack a little bit to what I was working on before I wrote Babel, which is the Poppy War trilogy. And that trilogy is very near and dear to my heart because I was so young when I wrote the first book. I was 19 years old, living in Beijing, wondering if I could write novels. And then one thing led to another, and suddenly I was being offered this three-book deal.、Um, and when you're 20, this all happened on my 20th birthday.、Uh, when you're 20, you say yes to anything that's put in front of you. And I didn't even think what it would mean to commit to spending the next five. Five years of my life on the same projects, the same characters, the same storylines, the same plot holes that I opened when I was 19 and somehow still failed to resolve when I was 24.、Um, and by the end of that whole process, after I turned in the final edit on *The Burning God*, I was so ready to run as far away from the genre of contemporary epic fantasy as I could. I mean, I'd had a lot of fun writing epic battles and. Military strategy and huge magic systems,、um, but I was just so sick of that voice. I was so sick of the sound of my own writing, and most of all, I couldn't stand those characters anymore. I had to break up with them and find somebody new. So it seemed to me that the furthest place I could run was Victorian London.、Um, it seems pretty obviously distant from ancient China.、Um, And I was also so the way that I brainstorm plot is I first wonder what sorts of historical questions or linguistic questions are really bothering me, and I'd been thinking a lot about silver capitalism in the long 19th century. So I told my editor I want to do something with the Industrial Revolution in the 1830s. Of course, this is not a story, so he was very worried.、Um, but that that situated firm, me firmly in the Victorian era. Um, and from there, 
I read around the Victorian pastiche a lot because I think one of the best ways to write about a certain historical period is actually to read fiction written during that time period because it's equally valuable understanding the stories that people were telling about themselves, how they narrated themselves during that time. And I really fell in love with them. I had not been a big fan of the Victorians as a child. I thought they were very boring and dry and I couldn't understand the world or its stakes or that register of English even. Um, and by the time I came back to the Victorians as an adult, I'd spent two years in England and could make sense of the vernacular a little bit better. Uh, and I realized that the Victorians are nothing like the stereotype of stuffy English literature. They're, they're messy and they're dramatic and they have all these inappropriate emotions, but they don't know what to do with them. And it's just, you know, I was startled and delighted to discover all these tropes that really resonated with me. So, I just read my way through Dickens during lockdown and at the same time I was writing Babel, which is very much a successor to Dickens. Um, the tail end of the story is on Saturday, uh, one of the theaters in Toronto invited me to pick any film to screen and then I get to talk to a captive audience about that film, which is any movie geek's dream. You know, instead of talking my partner's ear off, I get to talk the audience's ear off. And, and I picked Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield, which is an adaptation that came out during the pandemic. So nobody really saw it. Nobody was going to theaters, but I think it's, it stars Dev Patel. So I need not say any more. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And yeah, I forgot what the question was. I just, like thinking about Dickens. Oh, I, I was just curious in terms of why the Victorian times, but I mean, you answered it by wanting to get away as far away from ancient China as much as possible. Um, and I love that. I love your surprise at, at the era because I, I actually experienced something very similar. I remember being younger, I'm like, why would you read Dickens? It's so boring and it's so dense. But I fell completely in love with him as, as an adult. And I have a little pin here in honor of Mr. Dickens tonight. Um, but so you did answer the question, so it's all good. Um, but you also, so you opened up the book by having the readers meet your main character, Robin Swift. Can you give us an idea of who Robin is? Again, when I was trying to come up with the main character of Babel, I was thinking about how do I get away from Rin? Um, and Rin is the protagonist of the Popular Trilogy, and she has a very distinct personality. She is impulsive and brash and arrogant and so angry, and she wears her emotions on her sleeve, and she loves fiercely, and she has no patience for nuance. She's very determined and really just blazes her way through history. And at that point in my life, that was such a refreshing voice to write through because I was learning to assert myself as well and writing a fantasy character who was never shy, could never be coward, would um, just, you know, place her stamp on history and remake the world as she saw fit. That was so empowering for me as a young woman to do. Um, but I really wanted to avoid the trap of writing a character who is too similar I think I had my heart broken by a lot of young adult authors when I was in middle school and high school who 
would write these wonderful series and then they would announce new series. And I think, great, I, I get to read more by my favorite author. But then the new series would just be the children of the characters in the original series or a new cast of characters who all felt like watered down versions of the characters I already loved. So I thought it's quite dangerous to try to repeat what, have, what we've already done. I need to take on a different challenge. So Robin is Rin's opposite in every way. He is so uncertain about who he is and who he wants to be. A big theme of the novel is his trying to figure out what side he stands on because his hesitation is not a moral flaw. It's actually very sympathetic. It's always difficult to sort out what power structures you belong in and how you want to ally yourself along those structures. Um, and, and he's shy and he... As opposed to Rin, who just, you know, will impulsively punch somebody if they've disrespected her teacher, he likes to bottle everything up. He doesn't like to react in the moment. He is a quiet sufferer um, until he snaps. And and then it's like we have a whole new character on our hands. So it was it was a really fun challenge to write a character who is so suppressed and doesn't know what to do with himself and for most of the book is actually trying to assimilate and keep his head down and not cause trouble until things come to a head and he realizes that he really does have to pick a side and assert himself well i love that you're smiling so hard describing his his personality and experience and and whatnots and and i'm wondering too well, I want to get to translation because it's it's obviously such a huge crux of of the book. But can you also talk about? You mentioned his experience assimilate, assimilating, and also there's so much about the novel that's that's related to identity and and whatnot. So can you talk about without spoilers, right? Uh, can you talk about how does that impact you as a writer? Do you think that's something that many people are still experiencing today? Well, I with Robin. I am thinking explicitly about language and identity because I think that we are just different people in different languages. The easiest example of this is the kind of childish role play you do in beginner language classes. I took Japanese classes uh, when I started in my graduate program because I thought I would do research in Japanese and then it turned out I'm never going to need that Japanese. <laughs> um, but it was so fun because... Well, I have this running theory that you can't lie in a language that you're not good at. And what I mean by this is you don't have the ability to make contrived sentences or add layers to the truth or dress it up in any way. You can only reach for the bluntest and nearest concept to express something very basic about yourself that you want to get across. And I'll give you an example. On our first day of Japanese class, we all went around and did self-introductions. And, and the goal was, you know, how do you talk about yourself in Japanese? But none of us were very good at Japanese, so we could only say things to the effect of, hi, what do you like? I like movies. Movies? Uh, what movies? Horror. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, hey, hey. Horror. And it's, I mean, it's such a sweet, basic, childish interaction. Um, so I think in those like beginner Japanese classes, I was a more innocent, more blunt and more direct person because that's all the levels of expression that were available to me. Um, now, as for Chinese and English, then we start getting in really complicated and fraught territory. Um, because for me, 
and is the case for a lot of Chinese American students. I had pretty good Chinese when I was a child. Actually, my Chinese was better than my English for the first few years of my life. When we immigrated, I had a terrible English accent. I felt very uncertain about myself in English. I was so shy. I never wanted to speak up in class because I thought people were going to make fun of, and and they did make fun of the way I pronounced things. So I worked so hard to overcome that that English barrier. And then over time, because I wasn't using my Chinese, I lost all my Chinese and then had to gain it again. In college,、um, and and this leads to really complicated feelings when I do things like talk to my grandparents, and I want to talk to them as an adult, but my Chinese in many cases is frozen at the level that it was when I left China as a child.、Um, So it's weird having conversations when what you really want to ask are these complicated, painful questions about history and you know what everyone's been through over the last few years. But what comes out of your mouth is, "How are you doing? Are you healthy? Like, have you eaten, etc." So I was thinking about these issues of language and identity when I was drafting Robin, who is kind of like a chameleon. He's Uh, very gifted at just blending into the background of any situation he wanders into. That that always means giving up parts of himself, and and he reaches this point where he thinks I've given up almost all of the Chinese aspects of my identity, and that's something I don't want to let go of. How do I get that back? You're listening to our conversation with author Rebecca or RF Kwong, all about her 2022 novel Babel. We'll continue after a quick break. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford Healthcare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out, and can cause some not just emotional issues but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org/elevatinghealth. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're playing some of our conversation with author Rebecca or RF Kwong, all about her 2022 novel Babel. This event was hosted by local bookseller R.J. Julia. I asked Rebecca about the allure of academia and the kinds of academic authority she was calling into question. Take a listen. There's something called the dark academia genre, which I think is much more popular as a common phrase now than it was just a few years ago when I was starting to draft Babel,、um, because so many dark academia books have been published in the last four or five years. 
but it used to be that Dark Academia really just referred to Donna Tartt's novel, The Secret History. Um, and The Secret History is an archetype of this genre because it really is about the dangers of romanticizing the academy and a very particular kind of academy to uh, an elite campus, very much like Princeton or Yale or Harvard, a place, and Oxford, of course, a place that feels disconnected from mundane reality that feels like it could be anywhere in the past thousand years that really harps on its nostalgia for a past that never was a place where you can be suddenly transported to the 19th century and you're wearing you know these big jackets and ties and you're walking around smoking cigarettes and reciting poetry in the courtyard and it's easy to imagine why this this vision of the academy is attractive i mean Elitism is always attractive. There's always this vision that from the outside, you desperately want to be a part of it. And this is the strength of the secret history. It's told through a narrator who does not belong to this world and has found himself in close proximity with this gorgeous vision. And for much of the book, he'll do anything he can to get there on the inside and stay there and linger in that glamour. And this is very much how Robin feels when he gets to Oxford for the first time. And I think how a lot of students today feel when they land on campus for the first time. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It feels like a movie set. It feels like a place that is outside of time that is very much divorced from the messy realities that we all live in, where you can just read philosophers and poets and novelists from centuries past and forget who you are and where you are. And I think there's some benefits to that mode of education. I also think that it is so important for the academy to remain firmly attached to reality, to live the life not just of the mind, but the life of the world. And um, the practices within the academy that reinforce this kind of ivory tower, for instance, publishing academic texts in deliberately obscure ways that make them inaccessible for anybody outside campus, the fact that you have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to read most of the current scholarship that's being published if you don't already have a university email address. I mean, I can go on and on about my frustrations about this divorce from reality but it goes way way back and and we haven't even touched on the the ways that academies and the early universities in the US um, Harvard Princeton Yale William and Mary College the ways in which they were not just complicit or adjacent to or benefited from the active agents of projects of native genocide and perpetuating a slave society I mean there's an immense amount of documented history about that now. And, and we still treat these places as perfectly innocent, neutral, objective centers of knowledge production when really they have, you know, they've been built on blood and bones all along. Well, and then on that note too, we, you, you introduced us to Robin and some of the characters and, and, and we talked about translation that I want to get back to as well. But I also want to talk about Oxford as a character and as a location. It's it's such a it's such a popular place for people to fictionalize. I'm sure we all probably have images of, of fictionalized Oxford in our minds. And it's also a place that 
had a lot of very well-known authors come out and 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 write uh, famous novels. And so I'm curious in terms of you know your process in terms of blending history, blending real life experiences, and creating your version of Oxford. You know, what was that like? Was there was there a moment when you're researching Oxford and you're like, oh, oh, that happened, and it shocked you and it propelled you to want to do this? Well. I was lucky in that there's such a rich symbolic vocabulary attached to Oxford already that I can enter into imaginative discourse with. Um, you're right that so many people have been through Oxford and written about it. Um, just off the top of my head, I mean, Jared Tolkien was there, and I think you can detect shades of Oxford in how he describes the Shire. Uh, Philip Pullman was there, and Lyra's Oxford um, in the Golden Compass trilogy was a very vivid place for me when I was a child. Samantha Shannon went to Oxford, and she's written a fictional version of Oxford in the Bone Season. So. By the time I actually stepped foot on campus, I had all these romantic expectations for this gorgeous place. And I mean, the thing about Oxford is that it really just is that gorgeous. It lives up to every expectation. And and then what happens is that we all went and then we were severely depressed the whole time we uh, were in our programs. Um, and, and that's a whole other conversation. I will say the beauty that I found in Oxford was not the the romantic ideal of the, the student there. I was very disillusioned, actually, with my studies there and with the program. But with the friendship and um, like found family I, I made when I was there, um, that's really at the heart of Babel's Oxford, the, the romance is not in the outside architecture or the nice libraries or the high teas. The romance is those um, dimly lit, like tiny cramped student quarters where everybody's sitting cross-legged on the floor making inside jokes that nobody else can understand, you know, speaking in a made-up language that only the four of them know and howling with laughter at things that shouldn't be funny. That was my Oxford. And I think that is a universal experience because you don't have to be at a place like Oxford to feel this. It's the experience of any student on campus who is living away from their parents for the first time and figuring out who they are and who they want to become. Um, and with a bunch of other people who don't know who they are or who they want to become yet. And you're forging your identities side by side with one another and falling in love with one another. And that sense of people is just as vivid and important for me as the sense of place. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that because so I actually have a friend who's studying publishing there right now. And she described to me the exact same experience where she's so stressed out but she met a group of friends that really made the experience and she's still there, but she it's, she's really enjoying the experience now because she has friends that understand what they're going through. And I want to ask, because I, I love an academic setting or a, a novel that's set in an academic setting. And I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is because of the friendships that you follow with the characters and, you know, the shenanigans they go through. You think about yourself as a student and the shenanigans that you that you've done. And so there's a there's a sense of relatability, I think, when when you have a group of characters like in Babel, where they found themselves in this space. So can you talk about that kind of friendship and relationship and and maybe give us a glimpse of Robin's cohort, you know, his main friends and, and why why was it important to present the way they're being presented? 
There's a kind of deep and intense love you feel for your friends in college that I think for many people, um, something you never get close to again with adult relationships and unless you try really hard to, to find those people. And I'm fascinated with that intensity, which I think is really a hallmark of a lot of dark academia novels. It goes back to the secret history and the idea of the cohort, you know, the, the core four, the core five that love each other so much that the rest of the world pales in comparison. I mean, they'll kill for one another. They'll cover up murders for one another. I mean, I don't feel that way about any of my work friends. And I have thought a lot about why is it that in college you're able to make those relationships and and those often end up being the strongest friendships of your life, right? The people I met at Oxford, they're going to be my bridesmaids. They're all going to be at my wedding. I still see them. I saw them just two weeks ago. I hosted a big, big reunion at our home. And I was thinking, why... Like, what was special about that moment, aside from the fact that we were all severely mentally ill and being mentally ill together? Um, you know, why that point in your life? And I really do think it's because you are an unformed subject as yet, and you are defining yourself in relation to the people around you, like who they are, your image of them is is important for figuring out who you want to be to complement that. I think there's also this shrinking of distance from your friends in college that doesn't exist in adult life, in, in dorms particularly, but really on campuses generally. You can just wander in and out of people's rooms. Like family dinner just is going to the dining hall. You always see your friends around. It's not weird to see your friends for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with adult work relationships. Like it's weird and creepy if you see your friends too often. You know, you have a good friend day. It's somehow taboo to say, well, I'll see you tomorrow. It's like, oh no, we have to wait 48 hours to like digest what just happened until we're willing to see one another again. I think that's really sad. I think that grown-up life is so atomized and isolating and alienated as opposed to the period of your life where you can just be so vulnerable and open to everybody you come across. I think that's something we can change about adult life, by the way. I think it's something particular to like contemporary American society, this cold distance between even people who call themselves friends. But anyhow, I'm thinking about that intensity and those the nebulous barriers between love and jealousy and hatred. Um, so Robin's cohort is fun because every single member is tied closely to somebody I love very much. And the very first scene I ever wrote of Babel was there's this scene where um, it, it's just like such a flyaway moment. You might not even recall it, but they're sitting on the floor of Letty's room and they're laughing because there's the smell of fruit and they can't figure out where it's coming from. And they were playing a card game and the cards are scattered on the floor. And after leaving Victoire's room that night, uh, Robin walks home and he feels like he's walking on air because he's found his family. And I had that exact experience at Oxford. We were playing Bananagrams. We were arguing over whether the word feetsy is a word. It's not a word. 
and something smelled like bananas, and we couldn't decide if it was a group hallucination because we were playing bananagrams. But then we decided to make it an interrogation, and it was Katie's room, so we started screaming at her, "Where are the bananas?" And then we started going through all her stuff and opening the drawers and turning her coat pockets inside out to try to detect this banana. And at some point, she was like lying on the ground while we were shining our iPhone flashlights in her face, screaming, "Where did you hide the banana?" Um, and it makes no sense, right? It's one of those inside jokes where it's only hilarious if you were there and you experienced it. But this was a few weeks into term, and when I walked home that night, I remember just feeling so giddy and relieved because I found a reason to be happy in this place. And then I went home and opened up my word processor and wrote that scene, and it has not changed word for word. The composition of it—I mean, the names have changed. I didn't even know who the main characters were at that point, so I just tossed in some filler names, or in some cases, just used my friends' names. But that—that that scene is. What the rest of the story really is built around. I actually had a banana right before this, so I'm never <laughs> going to see a banana the same way again.、Um, I see some waving, so I think my time is almost up. But I do want to ask.、Um, you mentioned intensity, and what a lovely experience that you've had in real life that you're able to translate or transfer really onto the pages. So you have. Friends that found each other and they have these amazing times together, but eventually they also have other kinds of intensities that that follow into their lives. And so, I want to talk briefly too about the role of student revolution in in Babel and also in present day.、Um, I think it's one of those notions that a lot of people think、oh, when students are gathered together, it it doesn't do anything or or is weak. It's not going to go anywhere. But I actually find it very powerful. Whether or not there's any literal impact when a young people. Are getting together in groups, making sure their voices are being heard. There's so much respect I have for that because that's not what I was doing when I was 15 or 16 or 22 or or whatnot. So, can you talk about the role of student revolution in Babel and and just you know what are your thoughts of of having that as such a sort of a main draw, your driving force in the story? I've been interested in student revolutions across history for a long time. They are very central to Chinese history and Taiwanese history as well. There are so many examples of major protests and students in the streets demanding political change. And I've I've read a lot about student revolutions in other countries across time. And the thing about student revolutions is that they almost always fail.、Um, and So often they're just crushed, like brutally crushed, and it's not hard to imagine why students are not soldiers. They have no weapons. They're young and they're naive and they're idealistic, and they have dreams that are completely out of proportion to what the current situation demands. And most of the time, they're they're brutally repressed, but. Then why is it that those revolts echo across history? That we still know their legacies, that we're still thinking about them and talking about them. And I think that's because the student's weakness is precisely、um, his his allure. The fact that the student is so naive and doesn't have the jadedness of somebody who's been through more. The fact that students are dreamers, that they are romantic idealists. That kind of hope, that kind of ability to imagine an alternate future, is beautiful and it matters. And and I hope we keep seeing that. 
You're listening to our conversation with author Rebecca or RF Kuang. We'll pick up after a quick break. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're airing our recent conversation with author Rebecca or RF Kuang. Rebecca took some audience questions towards the end of the talk, which was hosted by local bookseller RJ Julia in November. The first question was about the idea of exportation on college and university campuses. Here's Rebecca's answer. Yes, it's also a bit tough to draw a direct parallel between how universities treat faculty and graduate students and undergrads today versus what I'm writing about in the 1830s, because the kind of exploitation that is most obvious in the text is the exploitation of somebody who otherwise would never be welcome at Oxford, could not possibly matriculate, and is really valued only because they are foreign, because they speak languages and have mother tongues that are not Queen's English, right? And so their very position is this precarious one where their outsiderness is what they're valued for and is the reason why they can never fully be seen as men of Oxford. Um, I think we're in a very different situation today where really the problem with the academy is that it's this cash machine designed to like milk as many tuition dollars out of undergraduates as possible. And I think it's uncontroversial to say that in a lot of respects, universities no longer exist as um, places where knowledge production and dissemination and having space for conversations about difficult topics are prioritized. Really, they're, they're corporations catering to clientele and exploiting everybody along the wayside, faculty and graduate students um, both. So it's, it's really frustrating to be in academia in this point in time and see, you know, the widespread shuttering of humanities programs because they uh, don't lead to six-figure jobs and consulting or um, they're, they're not as good for you as STEM fields. And it's so sad to see comparative literature departments going and, and language departments that made the news recently. And it's especially hard to be in somebody in ethnic studies who wants to teach marginalized histories. I teach Asian American history now. Enrollment for that class is much lower than it was in previous years. And to think that there was a brief boom in the 70s when there was a genuine interest in, in these histories that were untold and still largely to this day are not recognized or widely disseminated. And, and to think that the university does not care about that and it will be impossible to find jobs in those fields in the future, it's terrifying. It's a very different phenomenon than what Babel is describing, but maybe I'll write about that in the future. I don't know. One audience member asked about Rebecca's choice to leave the protagonist's real name a mystery and whether she might reveal it, a question the author was more than prepared for. 
everybody likes to ask that question during signings and people are so sneaky about it. They'll be like, by the way, what's Robin's birth name? And I'm like, and, and you think I would tell you <laughs> right now. Um, so I never answer the question, what was the name? I also don't answer the question, is there a name? And do I have it in the back of my head? Uh, because I'm kind of an extremist about how much the author's uh, attitude or um, framing of reality matters outside of what is put on the page. So I differ from a lot of authors who think, well, I made the universe, I made the characters, and I know all this background information on them that you don't. And my thoughts on that are the authoritative versions. Um, I think that the text is the text and meaning is generated between the author and the, the text and then the reader. So the only canonical thing is what's published and what's out there. And that is the full reflection of my intent for the story. And my intent is that his birth name is a lack and it's a space in the story uh, in which there is nothing, right? He can't even bring himself to think of it in his inner monologue because he has such a fraught relationship to that identity. He's been going by Robin for so long that Robin is his name. That's another point that I contest when people phrase the question a little bit differently. They ask, oh, what is his real name? But Robin is his real name. This is the name that he chose for himself and that he identifies against and... Uh, remember also that Robin has spent much of his life like learning how to be a perfect British subject and trying very hard to assimilate. It's not a name that was just violently imposed on him from the outset, although you can make that argument. It's also a name that he's been building up in his life and has significant meaning for him. So he doesn't think of himself as his Chinese name anymore. He thinks of himself as Robin. Another audience member launched into a series of questions that dug into the heart of the book's title and the questions surrounding the quote, necessity of violence. Here's her response. The questions you're raising are intractable moral problems and still nobody has answers. I don't have answers for you on when violence is justified and when to use it. So when I wrote the subtitle on the necessity for violence, a lot of my thinking about violent revolution came directly from Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, which has a chapter called On Violence, and his argument is essentially that the colonizer never comes to the negotiating table on his own. Why would he? He has absolutely no incentive to. You can make a parallel argument that slave owners were never just going to free slaves out of the goodness of their own hearts, right? It took a mass strike. It took the slaves freeing themselves and the slaves did free themselves. That's what happened. Not the kindness of abolitionists, certainly not the kindness of slave owners, but the civil war and slaves participation in it that brought about a change in the status quo. What Fanon is writing about is anti-colonial violence in order to rupture supply lines and to make it clear that the current situation of exploitation is no longer sustainable. This state of events can no longer hold. And he thinks that unless you're willing to make sacrifices, nothing is ever going to change. 
a lot of the same logic is applied to why strikes are effective, right? Nobody wants to go on strike. And for instance, we think about grad student strikes. Grad students want to teach their students and, and mark paper. Well, nobody wants to mark papers, but everybody wants to be doing that research and engaged in the university. Nobody wants to be sitting at home, but without that mass disruption, without withholding your labor, there's absolutely no reason why university administration would change their policies or decide to give you a dental plan. Um, but of course, there are so many ethical questions involved with violence and striking, which are different methods. Um, but I think there are parallel logics applied. And one is what happens to innocent people caught in the crossfire. I think it's pretty morally unambiguous that you should not kill innocent people, but is it justified to use them as a means to an end? I don't know, right? We have just war theory, which offers an example of when violence is justified. And you could apply just war theories to situations of colonialism where you could argue that it's a state of perpetual warfare so violent revolt is is therefore the only means possible in this case but just war theory is also quite clear that you can't hurt innocent civilians and now refusing to teach undergrads isn't the same thing as killing them but undergrads also have no power over how the ad university administration teaches grad students, right? They are the innocents in this case caught in the crossfire of the strike. So is it w like morally okay to put them in that situation? We don't know, but is it also morally okay to do nothing and let the status quo continue? Probably not. And these are intractable ethical issues that do not have clean answers that are just always going to be messy and complicated. And it's... I think anybody who claims to have a very clear answer, right, about um, how oppressed people can or shouldn't act um, probably has not thought through the complexity of, of these ethical problems. But I wish I had a clear answer for you. But all I can do and all my books can do is unpack the complexities of the questions involved and ask more questions. There was an MFA student and aspiring novelist in the audience who asked Rebecca for her advice on getting serious, staying motivated, and conquering imposter syndrome. Um, my advice for you is to read as much as you can, and importantly, to read in translation or read in another language if you have it. The reason why I say this is because there are so many rich methods for describing the world and thinking about the world that other languages have that English doesn't and vice versa. And the more time you spend thinking about the world, really moving through the world in a different way, right? In Chinese and English, literally the way that we conceptualize space and time are complete opposites. In English, the future correlates with the spatial direction of in front of us and, and the past is behind us. And it's flipped in Chinese because the logic is, well, we can see the past. We can't see the future, though. So we can only walk backwards into the future. So if even such basic concepts as space and time change from language to language, think about, you know, emotion words, the rich vocabulary of emotions from language to language, foods, all sorts of sensory experiences, 
the way that you conceive of interpersonal relationships. And then when you find those different ways of things, seeing the world in other languages, you want to bring them back to English, the language that you're presumably writing in, that forces you to get creative with English and, and to break it and stretch it. And this is how English has always been changed and added to, you know, I'm not sure that that's what Shakespeare is doing, but it's certainly what Nabokov was doing. He made English do things that it's never done before. And that's what I like to see from new writing anyhow. And finally, an audience member touched on her experience reading the novel as a native Spanish speaker. She asked for Rebecca's thoughts on that quote, an act of translation is always an act of betrayal. It's a really well-known phrase, and it means very simply that sometimes translation can be so destructive to what the original intent of a text was. There's a way to do translation that imposes ideological baggage onto the text in a way that perhaps the author would never agree with or presents the author in text in ways that are just burdened by stereotype and, and really colored by the presumptions of the person doing the translating. On the other hand, translation isn't an, always an act of violence. I, I actually think that statement is false. I think translation is magic. I obviously don't oppose the act of translation itself. The reason why I came to silverworking um, as the magic system is in Babel is because I've been working as a translator um, shortly before I started writing Babel. And, and I thought, you know, translation, the mundane translation that we have in our world is literally magic. If you think about it, it is magic that we can read Aristotle today and we're debating him and trying to figure out what he means and how he might apply to our lives, right? It is magic that we can read Taoist texts and try to decipher the Zhuangzi or Confucius. It's incredible that texts can travel such long distances in time to read to reach audiences that they perhaps were never meant for. And there's a way to do translation that is sympathetic and involved with historicizing the author and and recognizes there's no perfectly neutral, unbiased, objective translation, but there's a way to add in in a generative way, right, to, to walk hand in hand with the original author as opposed to making them into something they never were. You've been listening to author Rebecca or RF Kwong discussing her 2022 novel, Babel. This conversation was part of an event hosted by local bookseller RJ Julia back in November. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.